Hey, Nick. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for joining me. Yes, my pleasure. I have to share. It's it's an interesting feeling. I think you're the 35th formal guest we've had on the podcast. And I think perhaps you more than anyone else I've interviewed, I feel a connection before even meeting you, just having read your book and listened to you in interviews and absorbed your way of thinking and seeing health in the world. So feels good to be here with you. Yeah, likewise. I'm looking forward to exploring. Me too. Well, let's let's dive in. You know, to the listeners and watchers, thank you so much for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. I'm Nick Fortino here with Dr. Anoop Kumar, who is a medical doctor, emergency room physician, practicing in the Washington DC area, also an author and a speaker, wrote a book that I really love called Michelangelo's Medicine, How Redefining the Human Body Will Transform Health and Healthcare. And I reached out to you because I would love to have a conversation about what you mean by redefining the human body and your assessment of the medical treatment system in the U.S., and your assessment of, you know, the, the nature of health and the nature of well-being and how we can better cultivate that. So let me just start. I was kind of thinking about where I wanted to start the conversation. And I think I'd like to start with just kind of my take on your book and then let you respond to that. And then I would like to really consciously go into the philosophy of the mind and body and be careful not to get, you know, caught in that conversation, which can go on for a long, long time, I think, because I do want to then steer our conversation into the, just exactly how to cultivate well-being and how, how to see the nature of the human being in a way that lends itself to cultivating well-being. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. My take on some of the insight in your book is that, as you wrote, I'll paraphrase a bit, but the blind spot of the American medical treatment system is the true nature of the human being and the true nature of health. And the medical treatment system so it, it overlooks or maybe even disregards whole dimensions of the human being and it seems not to understand that the dimensions that are being overlooked or faintly seen but disregarded actually have a tremendous influence over the physical dimension of the human being that the medical treatment system is so focused on treating. And that, you know, this paradigm which I think could safely be described as being founded in materialism, um, leads to this practice that could be described, as you put it, as disease mitigation instead of well-being cultivation, putting out fires, as you put it. So have I interpreted your work accurately? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think you've touched, touched some of the main points. I would love to know like just a little bit about your experience of thinking differently. My, I don't, you know, I don't know for sure, but my sense is that the culture of physicians, um, you know, don't tend to think like this. So what has it felt like? How have you experienced the, the, you know, differences? It's felt in the beginning, much, much before I became a physician, you know, these, these processes, these thoughts, these experiences have been kind of wafting in and out of experience since I was a kid. And it was only once I became a physician that in a sense, there was a toolkit for now translating this in a way that I think could perhaps make sense to the rest of the world, rather than strictly keeping it in the box of philosophy Mm -hmm. or the box of spirituality or the box of analytical thinking, you know, I don't think this has to do with any of this stuff. I think we have to go there to kind of draw threads and to connect, but I don't think it fundamentally has to do with any of that. It just has to do with how we're experiencing ourselves and our lives, which to me, there's nothing more practical, more intimate, more real, more relevant, more powerful than this. So becoming a physician kind of gave that translational toolkit, perhaps, or even perhaps that the uh, idea of relevance or the uh, topic of relevance. Otherwise, if I'd spoken about it, it would all just be maybe philosophy or spirituality or something like that. And Personally, I'm not really interested in those, even though that may surprise some people to hear me speak. I'm more interested in this, what we're experiencing right now, and what is happening as our lives that we call our lives. And so having gotten that training, then began a process of those experiences then being then passing through this conduit of medical science and clinical medicine. And being translated into some kind of language that may touch people. So from my perspective, it was this, it was kind of the voice um, kind of crossing the, the boundary of the inner and the outer and making itself, representing itself um, kind of across the full spectrum rather than simply inside or simply outside. It was more about how can this message be heard So that was my experience. And in a way, that's still the experience. And even in medicine, even when I'm practicing in the ER, I'm still, those are still the eyes through which I see, you know, uh, I'm not trying to teach philosophy or, or the subtlety of health or well-being to my patient who's having acute chest pain and maybe having a heart attack. But I do think there's a way of being And I do think that people are receptive in extremis, right? It, it being in extremis opens your mind to new possibilities. And so that kind of learning is always happening for me. It is not usually conceptual or verbal as I'm practicing clinical medicine. 
So to sum it up, yes, it's this process that began in childhood that moves through the training of uh, medicine and that kind of is crossing this boundary of the inner and the outer and is finding relevance, hopefully, in the public. Mm-hmm. So this inner and outer dimension is kind of what I mean by the mind-body question. Of course, people, many people listening are well aware that this is, it's one of those philosophical contemplations that inspires reflection in every generation. We can't stop talking about it because it's mysterious. It's, it's meaning and what we can understand about it, I, I feel like is inexhaustible. And so my sense is that for many people who go through medical school training, any, any, um, it's like the conduit of that, like you, like you described it, tends to kind of smash any appreciation for these inner dimensions, the qualitatively in nature um, types of experience, because it, there's just such a strong emphasis on cold, objective, scientific, quantitative approaches to, you know, helping people, which I think does in some cases, I mean, obviously it's very good. It's very important to be quantitative, but we wouldn't want to smash that out either. Um, but how I'm, I'm curious to know, like how your awareness that had been cultivating throughout childhood and how that kind of survived a paradigm that tends to contradict it. Well, I think what is true is indestructible. And I'm not sure that it's anything I did, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's survived because in a way it's more true than the quantitative only paradigm. Mm-hmm. And it didn't survive because it wasn't attacked and it didn't survive because there were no competing theories or there were no competing practices. In fact, that's all, all that it was in a sense, it was surrounded all the time. It is surrounded still all the time, except in rare conversations like this, you know? And so that in a way is what ensured its survival. Mm-hmm. is that if it would break down, if it were not true, if it were weak, if it were simply a belief, if it were a fleeting experience, then I think it would have broken down. And I think it should break down then. You know, to the extent it is that, it should break down and it should be looked at again. And same thing for the quantitative approach. Mm-hmm. You know, I think whatever we're dealing with, we should have the same set of criteria. We should be bold enough to say, you know, my, my threshold for believing this is very high. And no matter what bar it crosses, it doesn't land into a zone of safety where then it's now unassailable. It's always on trial. It's on trial right now. And that's what I love about it. I feel like that's living that's that's daring to go somewhere and daring to keep going somewhere knowing that the next step might be the fall you know Mm -hmm. but i think it takes that to know what health might be 
mm-hmm. to know what you know hackneyed phrases like wellness or well-being may be what are they indicating i think it takes daring so let's what is this it that is indestructible what is this truth what is the true nature of a human being yeah i don't know if it's something that we can say i think it's something that we arrive or are arriving at by destroying that which does not stand up along the way you know so i could say it i could say it's it's consciousness you know but what does that mean that begins a whole other conversation which we can do but i at least want to say this first which is that i don't think it's something that we can say mm-hmm. um i do think it is something that destroys in a sense everything in its path and i don't mean that in a in a morose way i mean that in a beautiful way mm-hmm. you know in the same way that uh, winter destroys summer in the same way that whatever is real destroys and remakes that which is let's say dependent i'm not going to go to unreal but at least that which is dependent on reality is constantly destroyed and remade by something we might call reality and most importantly that is accessible to the human being to us and it's not only and the reason it is accessible to us is because it is our nature it is our nature that in a sense self modifies or that ripples as the anatomical layers of the human being mm. I've heard you explain and I would love to hear you explain for me now again and for our listeners how exactly does this realization end up translating to even the crudest levels of health physical health Well health comes from the word heal heal comes from the word whole and ultimately what people are looking for when we are talking about health is this feeling of wholeness it's this feeling of completion not having gotten to the finish line not that kind of completion but the completion that we already are that we don't have to go somewhere to become and this wholeness this is what healing is healing is the ing or the activity towards wholeness. And so when people are looking for health, when somebody comes in with uh a cellulitis and infection of the skin and the underlying the substructures and they are looking for health, right? They're looking for healing, which may mean the absence of pain, the regain of function, right? This these are the kind of surrogates of health. But what they're looking for is becoming whole again. and because our society teaches us that what we are generally speaking is this physicalized structure therefore the surrogates that we use are pinned to strictly the physicalized aspect of us and so that is what health is it's the redness and the pain going away and the regain of function which yes it's fantastic but if we want a more complete picture of health 
then we need to recognize more and more of the human being and how that influences all the different layers. So there's a very direct connection between seeing ourselves completely and therefore what choices we make as a result of seeing ourselves completely because we see how we are influencing ourselves with these choices and therefore how the layers then modify based on food, based on company, based on activity, based on choice, and therefore what then shows up as ease or dis-ease or health or disease. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that, you know, we have to be careful with these words that we use that already have loaded meaning for people and, and connotations to them because that leads to being misunderstood. So there's the caveat, but I can't help but, but think that in a way you're kind of saying we need to consider enlightenment in our conversation about health and well-being. Yeah, I wouldn't say that only yeah. because of exactly what you said, which is that words are loaded. And so just as I would prefer, I would generally leave out the word God mm-hmm. just because it's so loaded and can lead to confusion. Mm-hmm. Not that it cannot be useful as well. Right. I think enlightenment is another kind of word that yes, with a particular audience or in a particular context, I, I speak about it or write about it. But generally speaking, I don't think we have to go there unless we want to unpack what enlightenment mm-hmm. is. And that's a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing ourselves more completely, mm-hmm. why not? I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You, um, I want to read a little passage from the book here. Um, you wrote that men- medical training has little to do with health. Physicians don't study health. We don't study human beings in their entirety. We study disease processes. Accordingly, our work environments, practices, and medical treatment system as a whole aren't designed to support health despite our best efforts. And then I'll just read one more sentence that I soon recognize you say that while politics and profit contribute to many systemic problems, lurking beneath these issues was an even more basic problem, the lack of a full understanding of the nature of the human being. So you really emphasize the importance of understanding the nature of the human being and that our ability to truly cultivate well-being for ourselves and others depends on that. So you've, you know, you've articulated yourself beautifully and clearly, but can you say just again, or in another way, what is the true nature of a human being that we have to recognize with the caveat that we know all these words will fall short of the meaning to which they point? Sure. Yeah. So what I'm talking about essentially is human anatomy. And when we, When you ask a child to draw a human being, what we've taught them is essentially to physicalize, right? So the basic model they use will be the same one that you and I are likely to use, that anyone is likely to use, that the professional anatomist is likely to use. And we'll notice that in these drawings, generally, thoughts and emotions are not present. Meaning is not present. Purpose is not present. Relationship is not present. The sense of identity is not present. Experience 
the of the character experience is not present, right? I would argue that these are as fundamental, if not more fundamental to our anatomy than protons, neutrons, and electrons, mm. right? And furthermore, I would say that, so this very loosely can be called the first mind. It's what I call the first mind, thoughts, emotions, feelings, meaning, purpose, you know, the, the, the kind of experiences that move me as an individual is the first mind. And that anatomical layer has to be added to the physical layer. So we're completing the map to answer your question. We're completing the map of being human and what that looks like. So we have the physical layer and we're adding in this mental layer of the first mind. We also have to add in what I call the energetic layer or the energetic body, which is those structures, those anatomical structures that have been depicted by India, by China, by Thailand, by many cultures, probably I would be surprised if not every indigenous culture of some kind had some kind of representation of these structures. But I think they're the most famous forms are in yoga, the chakras, and in Chinese traditional Chinese medicine, the meridians and acupuncture points. Although some of them, we know they have physical correlates. So these structures and let's say patterns of energy are also part of our anatomy. So we're filling out now the physical, the atomic structure with the mental structure or the atomic body with the mental body and the energetic body. And deeper than that energy, I add an informational body. I'm going to leave that aside for now. And deepest, the deepest aspect of this is consciousness, not Nick's consciousness or Anoop's consciousness, but an undifferentiated reality that is prior to patterning, that is of the nature of, let's say, intelligence and awareness. This, in a sense, thrills itself, and these vibrations within it are what we detect as locality, as localization, right? Which is analogous to what physics is finding, that there is something we call energy. We don't know what energy is, right? We know about the units, kilowatt hours and joules and kinetic and potential. We know about categories of energy. But what energy is as, let's say, activity, we don't really know what that is conceptually, we can't say it, right? So physics is also saying that this energy, when it vibrates, is what we detect in a local place as a particle. And the reason that is true, or the reason that we have arrived at this through physics, is because it is a direct representation of the underlying reality, which is this broader, what I call this second mind, so to speak. This second mind reverberating with it itself creates the sensation of boundary and localization that we experience as individuality. So the deepest aspect of us is consciousness, this second mind. And as it starts to represent itself, we go through these ideas of energy, the energetic body, the thoughts and feelings that are percolating, the relationships, the experience in space, and finally, the quantification of that, right? The, the qualia to quanta apparent transformation. And I mean, it's an apparent transformation because there's not a fundamental difference. 
It's simply that once the awareness has localized and once it's picking a certain thing, now we are in the world of quanta. Not fundamentally different from the world of qualia, but we have, by our awareness, bracketed out the rest of what is here. And so we are perceiving and labeling and interpreting only those quantified processes, which is what we represent as the atomic body that is popular all over the world as what we call gross anatomy. Thank you for explaining that. It's interesting, the thought that there's no fundamental difference between qualia and quanta. Um, And I, I understand that you're saying that it is essentially along the same continuum, just a reverberation farther out from the source that appears to us as a particular physical element. Um, I would I would guess that some people would say, or I guess I'm saying that I see one difference as being that quantitative phenomena, the physical world is detectable by our senses. And I wanna let you argue back, but I, <laughs> that there's another voice in my head that says, well, yes, but different phenomena can be sensed by different beings. Like our sensory apparatuses are not built the same across the animal kingdom. So, of course, you know, the echolocation that a bat is detecting really exists in a physical enough way, even though my sensory apparatus is not capable of detecting it. But let me let you respond to that. This, like, we're, we are talking about what we can sense with our senses and technology and what we cannot. So how is that not a fundamental difference? Well, to me, the, the simplest way to address this is to ask a very simple question, which is, what does the word physical mean? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to say that the laptop in front of me, you know, is physical, or if somebody else is going to say that, I'll say, okay, just tell me what that means. What does it mean that it's physical? I haven't gotten a good answer so far. Let me try. I would say that if something is physical, we are saying that it occupies space, that it has, it is measurable in some way. And so if I like imagine a waterfall right now. I'm seeing that in my consciousness, but the image that I'm seeing, it has a physical reflection in neurological activity, but I would say that that neurological activity is fundamentally different than the waterfall that I'm seeing in my consciousness because the waterfall I'm seeing in my consciousness maybe is immeasurable and it doesn't seem to be occupying space in the same way that neurological activity does. Good. Yeah. So in that sense, the laptop, let's say it's physical because it's occupying space. So let me transport you to a dream where you and I are standing by a waterfall and we break out a really long measuring tape and we measure this waterfall and we've measured it very precisely to 70 feet and four inches, right? Um, The drop. It is certainly physical because it's occupying space, but is that space physical? No, right? That space is a mental space that we have called physical because we within the dream 
have identified only a kind of space and have not yet recognized that this space too is the extension of mentality. Right? So it's not- the, the, the notion of mental space is, is, is what I'm thinking about right now. Um, but I, I mean, I can get on board with it because sometimes I think space is even something like consciousness, that consciousness and space are similar in some mysterious way to me. And so perhaps consciousness is to the interior dimension what space is to the exterior dimension. But I'm over here still kind of fundamentally separating these dimensions, mm. which I think maybe is a difference in the way we're yeah. understanding things. Yeah, I would say space, space to me, space-time is mind. Okay. And even what we would call physical space, right? So maybe the space in which your body is existing right now mm -hmm. and the space around you where the chair is and the walls are, is mind. And it is minding as, let's say, Nick and Anoop. Uh, the virtual space that you and I are cohabiting right now is another kind of mental space, right? How is it that we are seeing each other, feeling each other, connecting, communicating? Is this all bits of data that are streaming across the world? I would say that's one representation of it. I don't think that's fundamentally what it is. I think we are very much literally in the same space. This is a mind space that we share. And there are aspects of space that we don't share right now. And all of these are different dimensions of mind. Whereas consciousness in the broader sense is neither internal nor external, but it gives rise to these dimensions of experience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Makes sense to me. And that these dimensions of experience, physical, mental, are in a way, would you, would you be comfortable using the word emanating from consciousness? Yeah, I think, I think all of it is kind of a compromise. And I, so uh -huh. I use kind of all of these in different contexts. Yeah. So I'm totally fine with emanating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say too, in your interview with Deepak Chopra, that upon realizing your own nature, and it's more than, it's like the, the realization is an experience of it. It's not a thought that comes to mind, although it might end up getting translated like that. So this experiential knowing of your own nature ends up, there's like, in a way, you know, again, it's a sloppy phrase, but there's a chain reaction that leads to you having a general sense of maybe safety. There's this anxiety reducing effect it has on the psyche it seems to me, because again, there's no, there's now no sense of lack and perhaps no sense of threat. And that really does translate. I think our core identity like that translates to our mental, emotional activity. And then of course, mental, emotional activity directly translates to physiological activity. There's this, I see the smooth continuum that kind of maps onto your um or this philosophy of the true nature of a human being yes 
that's that's exactly true is that it is a continuum it is a gradient and you know uh, moving outwards from consciousness to what people might call information and energy and mind and body you know i just named five things but mm -hmm. those five is just where our mind laid down the boundaries mm -hmm. right just like every time the wave washes ashore it leaves a line mm -hmm. where it was right but that every time it washes ashore that line changes sometimes it's a little further sometimes it's it's a little bit closer sometimes it's broader you know sometimes you go to the beach and you say wow the surf's never come this far before and it's just like that you know in this conversation we're drawing our lines somewhere in another conversation we'll draw our lines elsewhere you know mm -hmm. it depends on the audience it depends on the minds involved do you think so something i often think about when i'm kind of assessing and making sense of the efficacy of the medical treatment system i often have to remind myself that it's a pretty it's a pretty diverse system that there are physicians doing significantly different work from each other and so i should be very careful in any kind of generalization i have of the medical system so do you think that there are branches of medicine specialties in medicine where this understanding is more important or where a lack of this understanding would be even more consequential? I think the closer a person is to death, the more important this becomes. Interesting. Because it's where it's death is what forces a person to leave their assumptions at the door, right? And it forces you to leave your physical body at the door ultimately, whether a person wants to or not. So, you know, if, if I'm going for a checkup because I have a cold or, you know, I sprained my ankle and I want to know if it's fractured or if it's, if it's a sprain, then the stakes are not so high. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably not going to be available for a kind of shift anyway, to begin with. So if I had to say it's, I hesitate to say it's less important anywhere, but I do think the stakes are higher and the possibilities are greater when death is close. Uh, because again, what we are talking about, what people are talking about, even if we don't realize it is healing and it is about wholeness. It is just that our, idea of what we are is narrow so that wholeness has been mapped to the physical structure. But whether we do that or not, wholeness is wholeness. Just like I said before, what is true is true and is going to stand in the end regardless. So I think that being the case, you know, certainly I think in emergency medicine makes a difference. Um, oncology, right. It makes a difference. Um, I would say, I'd say those two are two of the major ones, but you know, it, in general, the, the healthcare environment is one that has kind of made the human being into a robot. I mean, our very, our, our literal depiction of human anatomy is of a robot in the sense that it's made of smaller parts. You put the, the particles together and the subatomic particles and the atoms and molecules and cells and organs, and you have Nick and you have a noop. 
That is the model that we're taught. And we still have great doctors, right? You can have a great doctor, but it's important to know that that doctor is great in spite of the model they were given, right? Not necessarily because of the model. Of course, the model has helped to understand the physicalized structure, but nobody thinks a doctor is great just based on their knowledge of you know, the physical workings of the body. It's rapport, it's how they understand you, it's the values, whether they get your values, you know, how they talk to you. And none of these, by the way, are dependent on physical anatomy. So in spite of the model we are given, we can still do great work because human beings are inherently powerful and creative, right? We all have that capacity. So it's important not to conflate the success that we've had or even great physicians with the models that we're given that are still limiting us. If it were up to you, would you add curriculum into medical school that related to, to this? Yes, I definitely would. I would add in um, one is a basic understanding of physics, you know, partnering with the physicist and just saying that this idea that we are made up of small parts has hit a wall and at some point is no longer true, that these small parts are actually vibrations or aspects of something vast, right? We know that experimentally, but we don't know the implications of that. We don't know what the meaning is of that because there's no real right or wrong when it comes to meaning, right? It's, it's more about what does that mean to a person? And so that's the physics part. And then probably the philosophy part is where I'd say, that, well, that is actually indic indicative of an underlying reality, which is that has to do with us, you know, just as in the dream, when Nick and Anoop uh, are trying to find out what this tree is made of, this dream tree, and we've gotten it down all the way to atoms and subatomic particles, and we get to the tiniest bit of tree, this elementary particle. And when we investigate that with the help of our physicist friend, we find that that particle is actually made up of like this whole thing, like whatever this field of energy that we're in, let's call it, right? That you and I know from now it's a dream, but dream Nick and dream, dream Anoop don't know that. And they say, well, it's it seems to be, how can this small thing be made of this? How can something small be made of something big? It contradicts the rule that we've all learned. Things are made from smaller things, right? But of course, we know how that's true because we are outside the dream and we see that, hey, Nick, hey, Anoop, there is a mind, there is a dreaming mind that is appearing as particularity within the dream. So that's the philosophy component that should serve as a hypothesis, right? This is not handed down as truth. This is handed down as a hypothesis for medical students to investigate. And so you put physics with philosophy, with anatomy, right? So if this is true or not true, what are the implications for human anatomy? And that's all you gotta do and you leave it there. And human beings are wonderful enough and creative enough to then start looking at everything from our model of anatomy, to how we diagnose, to how we treat, to actually bringing conversations about health and healing into training. In psychology, 
Abraham Maslow was famous for saying that Sigmund Freud had provided the sick half of psychology and that humanistic psychology was attempting to provide the healthy half. And I can't help but draw a parallel in a way that perhaps in the same way that it applies to psychology, understanding mental disorders and just pathologies is very important and has value. And we need to rigorously study what the constituents are of thriving and flourishing and well-being and happiness. And I'm, I'm kind of drawing that parallel to what you're suggesting has to happen in the medical field is a rigorous shift toward understanding what contributes to health and well-being beyond the absence of disease, but actually thriving. We are still in the shiny new object phase of the transition, you know, where spirituality has come on the scene in the last few decades is, is really popular. You know, yoga is a Sanskrit word, which is English now. Um, meditation, mindfulness, Buddhist practices. I mean, it's, it's popular, right? I think it's great that it's popular and it's being adopted in medicine in, in the, in the name of mind body medicine. Right. Mm -hmm. And what does that say? It basically says, Hey, there's this aspect to us that we've kind of been ignoring. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's meditate, let's be mindful, let's do all of these things. And lo and behold, people are feeling better. Mm-hmm. right? People are moving towards healing, right? Not necessarily cure of the conditions. I want to make a distinction between healing and cure mm-hmm. where healing can include cure, right? But they're not the same thing. Right. So through these practices, people are experiencing healing. They're experiencing power, right? Wow. Like I have this, I have this ability to, to influence my experience. It's not just, you know, going to the expert and letting them do everything or having the prescription do everything, but it's still in the shiny new object phase because it's not, it's not yet systemic, right? We haven't, we haven't yet been rigorous with this. We're making progress. First, it was alternative medicine. Then we said, oh no, complementary. Then we said, oh no, actually integrative. And, you know, we have to get, we still haven't gotten rid of the adjective yet Mm -hmm. to just call it healing. Or just yeah, call it medicine, medicine right? right? We're we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. <laughs> and that big step to shift from shiny new object phase to the transformation phase, mm-hmm. you know. And this, I'm speaking to everybody. If you want to transform healthcare, how many times have we heard about transforming healthcare? You know, it's usually about insurance or, or coverage or access, all of which are important. But actually, I write in the book about the informational problem as opposed to the operational problems of healthcare which usually get all the headlines, but the informational problem and the key to moving into the transformation phase from the shiny new object phase is saying that, okay, what all of this is telling us is our model of the human being is radically incomplete. And therefore, uh, you know, taking those couple hard steps forward, therefore we need a new model of human anatomy. And actually, Nick, if I can read you this. Please. Um, let me show you this actually. I've changed my screen. I don't know if you can you see this? The Atlas of Human Anatomy. Yeah, this is by Frank Netter, Dr. Frank Netter, who is a physician and illustrator. Mm. Amazing drawings of mm. human anatomy. Mm. Right. 
you know, like there's a liver and it's detail over here is the kidney pancreas. And so amazing drawings that medical students use, right? Mm. He drew this. Mm. Well, let me, in the, in the beginning of it, here's what he wrote. Anatomy of course does not change, but our understanding of anatomy and its clinical significance does change. This therefore required much updating of many of the older pictures and even revision of a number of them to make them more pertinent to today's ever expanding scope of medical and surgical practice. In addition, I found, says Dr. Netter, I found that they were gaps in the portrayal of medical knowledge as pictorialized in the illustrations. And this necessitated making a number of new pictures that are included in this volume. Hmm. What is this giant of anatomy saying? He's saying that anatomy is changing. He starts by saying anatomy does not change. And then everything he says after that <laughs> is essentially saying that anatomy, or at least our vision of anatomy changes. And that, that means he had to edit pictures. Did the human being change? No, but his vision changed. His understanding changed. The needs of the society, the needs of medical practice changed. And so the models of anatomy change. And that's where we are right now to go from shiny new object to transformation. For all the people that are talking about transformation, please hear me. We need a new, more complete model of human anatomy, which does not exclude or leave out anything that we've done, but it adds on mind as anatomy. These energetic structures that have been found throughout the world right? This is not one civilization that describes this. These are many civilizations. And this is, these are all homo sapiens, by the way. If we have many civilizations describing these models of anatomy, and we have another one, what does it say about how much we know that we cannot reconcile these, right? These have to be included. And then it's up to us to do the work to reconcile them to have a deeper understanding of energy, of mind, of information, of consciousness, of physicality, of mentality, of fields, of waves, all that is there. And we have, we collectively have the knowledge, right? We have experts that have, the, have different pieces of the knowledge, but we need to bring these people together to then describe how these layers of anatomy can be reconciled. And that is the linchpin of transformation in healthcare. And that's where integrative medicine has to go next. It's not enough to say we're practicing alongside medicine. We're talking about the same human being and we need to integrate our knowledge to the point that it's no longer integrative. Mm. One of the challenges I see and kind of foresee is the extension that you're we're adding here of the mind onto anatomy is just a it's i feel like again here's me pointing out what i think is a fundamental difference between that and the physical body which is that it cannot it's verifiable only from a first person perspective that's maybe i'm wrong about that maybe we'll develop extensions of our senses through technology that end up detecting the subtle body anatomy of, you know, yoga philosophy or the meridians of Chinese medicine or the chakras of yoga, maybe we will actually detect them and we will find that, no, actually, this is made of the same stuff. It was just so subtle. We couldn't detect it. We needed advanced technology. I think that's 
totally possible. Um, but I do see that as like being the challenge is how do we find agreement until there's some type of way we can verify it in a shared experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I think we have to get there by first saying that, Hey, this is an important part of our experience, yeah, right? right? That the mind is a body, just as we might call the physical structure body. Later, we can kind of integrate and maybe even go beyond these divisions. That's maybe a step three. But step two, step one is to declare that these are as important, you know? And I would say even the physical structure is only known through a first-person perspective. I mm-hmm. think the physical structure is entirely subjective. I don't see any difference between the physical body and the mental body except that our attention has been trained to be locked into what we call the physicalized aspect of being. And it happens when we're children, right? Remember when our parents said, hey, Nick, this is your nose. This is your ear. This is your head, eye. shoulders, knees, this and is your toes. shoulders, head, mm-hmm. shoulders, knees, and toes, right? They didn't say identity. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is you in space. This is joy. You know, this is joy, you know, which like, is almost like an this is, this is anger. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. They could have, all adults can do that. But what happens is we tell children, this is who you are. Okay. Okay. Do you get it? This is who you are. And children say, okay, okay. Because otherwise you're disappointing the people you love. And then those children grow up to be adults and experts and then believe that, you know, the physical is objective. No, it's entirely subjective, just as mind is, right? Or the, there's no fundamental difference. What you are seeing as me is because your attention has been trained to see some aspect of me. My attention has been trained to see some aspect of you. It doesn't mean that only what I am seeing of you is what you are. It doesn't mean that somebody from another culture would not see Nick differently than Anoop sees him because the training of their faculties have been different, right? So I think we kind of fall, we lapse into this idea of the body being objective and physical and the mind being subjective and mental. But I don't think there is such a fundamental distinction. It is simply a matter of our training, just like If I use a telescope and try to see you, I won't see you. I won't see your body. I'll say, where's Nick? I'm looking through the telescope. Okay, Nick's not here. If I use a microscope to see you, I won't see you. It'll be too magnified. It'll be too close. I need just the right distance, just the right focus to see, ah, Nick's physical structure has come into focus. And that is what is happening right now all around the world, including to all the experts who were never taught that their mind is a lens. And depending on how it's pulled and stretched, different dimensions of mind, space, time come into focus. So if you take a person right before and right after they die, what, in your view, what has happened? Because there's much about their anatomy that it looks exactly the same. And when we, when we take our students in to look at cadavers, we say this is human anatomy. But what is, what is now not there anymore? What happens 
at that moment in your view? Well, there are aspects of the, of the mental body and the energetic body and the underlying impulses that leave from the physicalized structure. We can say it kind of detaches from the physicalized structure, right? If you look at one second before death and one second after death, you know, it, it's, not, it's not so cut and dry, but if we were to say that, mm-hmm. the, the physical body looks essentially the same, right? But what has changed is that, that the, the energy or the, the influencing medium that allowed it to express in the way that it did is now no longer associated with that physicalized aspect. And so as its needs or as its impulses exist, uh, accordingly, it will kind of move on to whatever environment kind of suits itself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to note that when people die, you'll see when people die, it's, it's not necessarily cut and dry, right? For actually for all of us, for most of us, it happens over decades, right? It starts maybe in our thirties or so, late twenties to thirties, the physical structure has reached its peak. At least I'm talking like in general society on earth, the physical structure has kind of reached its peak around that time. And there's a slow process of death that happens. And so it's not that in a moment, everything leaves, but slowly the abilities start to change. The, the mentality starts to change. The association with kind of society starts to change, which is sometimes what we call dementia or de-minding is when the mind starts to kind of separate and starts to leave, so to speak, from the social norms and the ideas of our society. Right? So I think I think this kind of model can give us lots of insights into any aspects of birth, of death. Interesting. Yes, I, I follow this. And so you would then, you know, assert that what we are describing as the mind while we're alive is inseparable in a way. It's an, the body is an expression of this continuum emanating from consciousness and that when the body dies, there is in a way a shedding of a layer of that a ripple, but that the, the being that was animating that body, this next level mind um, continues to exist in a different dimension. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's a next level mind. It's, it's the exact same mind. It's that first mind, the kind of localized first mind, that very same mind, which is a differentiated aspect, right? Just like the vibration is an aspect of the field. It's a differentiated aspect of the second mind. And that very same first mind keeps moving on, right? It's, it's not, that is not dependent on the physicalized structure. The physicalized structure being more gross is dependent on the subtler for its kind of animation expression, Mm -hmm. but not the other way around. So the mind just moves on. And by the way, that mind that has kind of, let's say, left the physicalized aspect behind sees itself as a body. This is why I, I call it the three bodies or the five bodies model. It is a body. It's just that from the level of our education in this society, we have such a narrow definition of what a body is, right? But actually, you know, we talk about bodies of water. We talk about a body of knowledge. Body of knowledge is very close to this use of the body, right? So 
we know that a body is more than just this kind of hard thing. So that mind, once, once the, the physicalized structure is not as useful anymore, it moves on and it perceives its own body. It's, it is a body of knowledge or a body of experience, so to speak, just as much a body as we would consider, you know, the physicalized structure as a body. I feel like this is the crux of how you think versus how honestly every other physician I know thinks is that um, many, most physicians I know, most people I know think that the brain causes consciousness, that it starts from the physical, that's the ground of existence. And these elements are producing all these byproducts of experience. And so, of course, the implication there is once the body dies, the lights go out. There's nothing, no consciousness. But yours is, as some people have described it, top-down causation from consciousness down to the physical body. And so when the physical body dies, then that's, in, in a way, the only thing that was removed from this conscious experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say... I think it's ridiculous that we think that it's the brain or that matter uh, magically creates uh, consciousness. Mm. Uh, we don't, I don't think we have good evidence for that. We know that they're very closely related. Brains and neuronal activity are very closely related to first mind consciousness. We know that, but there's no reason to go beyond that and say the brain creates consciousness. That's a gross overstep. You know, and I think it causes a lot of misunderstanding and suffering, and it causes us to have to create things, create fields that we call spirituality, um, or uh, create words like reincarnation that scare people, all because we've simply overstepped the evidence mm. and said that the brain creates consciousness, rather than saying, you know what, brain and consciousness are, are really closely associated. How interesting. What would what you are the say? possibilities, you know? And, and this is why people use the word neurological correlates of consciousness instead of neurological basis or causes of consciousness. Right. right. One of my best friends is also a physician. He's an anesthesiologist. So it's been interesting to get his view on this because he's someone who kind of uses technology to turn the lights on and off for people, to turn consciousness off in a sense. And so that... I think medical specialty might um, lend itself to the bottom-up materialistic brain creates consciousness view because it's like saying, look, I can disable this brain in this particular way and consciousness disappears. So I have, you know, my counter argument, but I'm interested in yours. What would you say to that? Well, uh, many things, but going back to the very beginning of the conversation, the question is, what is consciousness? And is consciousness restricted to the experience of waking, right? Essentially, reportable waking experience is what is defined as consciousness in, in medical science, typically. Now, neuroscience researchers, and, you know, they'll start to have broader definitions, mm -hmm. but reportable waking experience is usually what is consciousness and definitely reportable distinct experience, Right. So if so in, in emergency medicine, if somebody has some kind of trauma 
and they and they pass out, quote unquote, right? We say there was a loss of consciousness. What does that mean? It basically remembers they cannot recall mm-hmm. what happened. Is not recalling what happened the same as a loss of consciousness? I don't think so. I don't think it's the same. Like not being able to report something or recall something is not the same as a loss of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, even if they could report that and recall that, is that all consciousness is? No, I think we'd have to be incredibly ignorant and arrogant in the face of all the research that is there in other traditions like Advaita or Buddhism, and I'm sure, I'm sure others. There are encyclopedias on the nature of consciousness. And I'm using a, a surrogate word consciousness, but on the nature of consciousness and how it extends beyond individuality, the way it relates with space. I mean, you could go on and on, but we have just closed ourselves off from that. Why? Again, our anatomical model says, this is what we are. And for us to leave that behind and start investigating this and discover that, yes, there are other layers or levels of consciousness, then that would be, that would be kind of giving up too much. But if we did that, then I think we would see this and we would see that, okay, flipping on and off the first mind reporting or the first mind recollection, is not nearly the same as saying that consciousness is absent. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I adopt the analogy. This analogy kind of explains my understanding of the nature of consciousness and its source, which I would say it's the radio and the station analogy where the brain is kind of like a radio, a conduit, a channel, an attractor, and consciousness is more like the station. And if you turn the radio off, it doesn't mean the station doesn't still exist. If you break the radio, it doesn't mean the station doesn't still exist with all in all its form. Um, And I agree. That's a good point that like, just because someone can't recall what was just happening while they were anesthetized, doesn't mean that they weren't conscious during that. It just means that their memory is not capable of channeling that experience. And similarly, when a person is in the moment of being unresponsive, we would say they're unconscious, but there too, I think it's quite possible that given the current physiological state of their brain, it is not capable of attracting or channeling this consciousness. And we can work with it, hopefully, and bring it back and and open the channel again. But right now it's not. But that doesn't mean the conscious being that inhabited this body disappeared. Right. And, you know, there, there are so many cases, I'm sure your friend knows, where despite anesthesia being given, that the person can remember the events of the surgery, right? And they may have even been painless so that the body was in a sense anesthetized or the pain was anesthetized, but consciousness was not. And so all it takes is one case of that to say that, okay, you know, there is, there may be at least some consciousness beyond this brain. And the other thing is that, you know, the, the, the radio station analogy works. Um, and what would make it more compelling is if, the radio were made up of the station waves. Mm. It's a big difference. It's a crucial point, you know, just like the, you know, uh, a gust of wind is made of air. So we can talk about gusts of wind and, and hurricanes, and we can talk about gentle breezes 
and uh, you know the all kinds of currents in the air and when we pause we can see that there is only air and we can appreciate it as incredibly solid it can crush houses this air that crushes houses so which is more physical which is more fundamental you know and i think that is exactly the case that is a relationship between brain and consciousness uh, that the the brain itself is a representation in consciousness as it differentiates into a subject object and observer observed relationship in the realm of particularity mm. a buddhist therapist that once had said her favorite word to describe this was coalesce and i was like wow now it's mine too <laughs> because i get that's 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 how i see it too it coalesces into a brain yeah um so okay okay it's really it's fascinating you know to think through this with you and to philosophize here and and to also like stay aware of my own conscious experience um would you would you say it's accurate we could describe it as it's important to root yourself in your own nature mm yeah i i think that's a helpful phrase i think it it comes off as a little harsh to me and 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 fully acknowledging that i may have said the same thing and i probably will say the same thing in the future um but for now i'll say that it comes off as a little harsh um it, in a way we can't but be our nature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so if if rooting works yeah i understand what you mean though we can't but be our nature mm. when it comes to that question of what is consciousness and what can we attribute to consciousness and it's interesting to point out that there's conscious experience that can be defined as responsive to stimuli and that's kind of how we measure it from the outside if a creature is responsive to stimuli even if it's a plant we can say it's conscious on that level and alligators and bears and dogs and birds and other animals are definitely conscious on that level but then there seems to be this reflective consciousness awareness of experience that we don't know for sure but doesn't seem to be available in the same way to every other creature on earth so what how do you understand this reflective nature of consciousness i think humans probably complicate it more than it is i wouldn't say that other creatures don't have access to their simpler selves let me put it that way um i just don't think that i'm not talking about all creatures but just generally i just don't think that other creatures would care to think about it or begin to think about it as oh this is my simpler self or oh this is consciousness or oh this is something else because it's just a sense of me I think the sense of me can waft between non-locality and locality. Um and even the the boundary 
you're kind of approaching the question of where life begins and non-life is, you know, animate versus inanimate, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a thing versus a being that too is a wafting. You know, I don't see either. I would say that nothing is alive and nothing is dead, or I would say, I don't see anything that's not alive. I would just call this life. There's life. And life appears as things. But if you look at things, even inanimate stones, they're not inanimate. There's no such thing as inanimation in this universe. If you look closely enough, everything is vibrating. And whether you call it life or not is dependent on the human conditioning and the level of learning and education and the criteria that we are taught that differentiates life and non-life. Would you say there's anywhere we can make a distinction when you consider, consider the word sentience? Is there anything that is not sentient? Yeah, well, I would, I would, truncate the sentence to just say, is there anything, you know, it, that's really the question. It's not that, is there anything that is sentient? Once I say, you know, there's a bed over there in front of me. Once mm-hmm. I say that bed is a thing and that is what it is. I've kind of imposed my violence on life, you know, and, and cut its limbs off and said, there you are bed or there that is this, this dead bed, insentient bed. But that, again, is a, is a result of head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? Again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the, the nursery rhyme, but it shouldn't mm-hmm. stop there. You've got to represent the whole human, not just the physicalized structure. But once we do that to the child, the child then says, okay, bed, right? After all, I'm head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Well, here's a bed, legs and mattress, and, and that's it. No, that's not it. That's not all that is here, right? And so it is not that... Things are sentient, but sentience is what is, and it can represent itself in many ways and boundarize itself, if I may use such a word, in ways that aspects of it are recognized rather than it itself. I admit it's easy to get on board with that if I simply zoom out to see the earth as a whole system. And I'm like, yeah, okay, obviously this is a sentient being in a sense. And therefore, yeah, me here in my microscopic level, looking at all the gravel outside and everything, wondering whether it's sentient, I'm just too zoomed in here. So you zoomed in to the to the to the cognitive framework Mm. more more than the graphical representation. The graphical representation is not the issue so much that the cognitive frameworks Mm. we were given. Like even the words we chose, right? Like you chose gravel, which just has kind of hard stone, like not alive, right? And I chose like a bed, a very bland kind of object. Like nobody would think a bed is alive, so to speak. But it's not the graphical representation. It's the cognitive frameworks and how we other things. Gravel, gravel is nothing like me, you know? A bed, bed is just that, but I am, I'm sentient, you know? I call this the recognition problem um, of consciousness, which is that we can only recognize something in others. You're a psychologist, you know this. We can only recognize something in others that is in us, right? It is impossible to recognize something out there that is not in us. If you spot it, you got it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) As they say. And so 
the more of us that we spot, the more of that the world has got. Mm. I'm with you. There's somewhat on this note. I want to talk about something that relates to, I think, an inherent completeness or perfection. I might even use that word. So you talk about how when we are, when we don't feel whole, when we're not aware of our inherent whole nature, we seek fulfillment and wholeness often like outside ourselves. And I would add to that, maybe you've said this too, but that those are the things that become addictions, especially those things that bring about a temporary sense of wholeness. They at least um, eliminate the feeling of lack. And that often compels us to be thinking and doing and feeling and acting out in the world. And I think that is very problematic when a person is seeking fulfillment in the wrong places, when they're seeking something that is already within themselves, outside themselves. Um, but I would add that I think that some people are also compelled to act based on a different source of different fuel source. One that is not based in reaching out to complete myself, but one that is based in understanding my own nature and seeing any kind of sign of like, for example, imperfection, imbalance, injustice, unfairness. How could I know what perfect could ever be if there wasn't something perfect within myself? How could I know what balance looks like if there wasn't something that reflects that balance within myself? And so like I want to get into your four pillars. And when I talk about the basics, the pillars of well-being, I often add meaning. And I think that this action that is sourced in this awareness of our own nature is very meaningful type of action. It fulfills our will to meaning, as Viktor Frankl called it. So I just wanted to share I just wanted to share those thoughts and um, yeah, I mean, any, I, I would love to hear your reflections on those thoughts. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I don't think the two are different to me in the sense that acting out in terms of addiction and wanting to complete myself that way and acting out to kind of, to make the reflection more accurate or to make the reflection of the inner and the outer kind of parallel each other. Um, they're both to me a kind of completion because there is, there are these different shades of what we are. And as the individual, there are certain actions. I'm compelled to speak about this. That's the way I feel, mm -hmm. right? Not literally that somebody's holding me and saying, you must speak or anything, but I feel that. I feel that strongly that I want, and it is my nature to do that. And so, and everybody has their own thing, right? And so this is where it's useful to draw the lines and to say, hey, the physical structure has its needs, right? You, we can try to transcend all the boundaries and, and live in a totally different way 
sure, if someone wants to do that, they can and would probably have to start like a different kind of society or that's often what monasteries kind of are or, you know, even people that may live alone in the wilderness may be doing different things. That's one way to do it. Uh, another way is to say that, okay, the body needs oxygen. The body needs this kind of food. You know, the mind, things that help with mind are meaning, uh, purpose, you know, getting a feel for our sense of identity. And this is where drawing the lines help. And this is where we can say something like nutrition, movement, rest, and connection. If we attend to these, you know, the experience of life will change. And this is not spiritual. This is not esoteric. This is common sense, right? If you change nutrition, movement, rest, connection, somebody, there's a good chance that somebody who has high blood pressure, that it'll come down. There's a good chance that somebody who has type two diabetes, that they will have to reduce or even get off of their medications because their glucose will come under better control, right? There's a good chance that somebody who has arthritis that may be associated with certain kinds of foods, that that will start to go away. So it's not esoteric to say that by drawing certain lines, it can give us certain pathways, right? Nutrition, movement, rest, and connection. And I think from a very practical standpoint, we need a campaign. Um, are you in the United States, Nick? I am. You are. So I think in the United States, for example, we need an educational campaign about the basics of health. Amen. I haven't seen it. I mean, I've seen like, you know, food plates, what you should eat kind of thing. But I'm talking about a whole picture that I think should include these nutrition, movement, rest, and connection, and explain them in a beautiful way with nice colors, uh, attractive short movies, and get that out there, educate people so they know that. That should be one part of the campaign. A second part of it should be, it's not enough to do that and sit back while people can't afford fresh foods, mm -hmm. right? Or they can't get to the market to get fresh foods. So we need to invest in partnerships to make these things available, right? Movement, anybody can do, but certain kinds of nutrition are not available to everyone, right? We need to talk about the rules in the workplace that allow people enough time for rest and for connection. So that's step two is, is providing access or partnering with those people, those organizations that are ready to do this. And then three is holding ourselves accountable, right? HHS should be doing this, the Department of Health and Human Services. The CDC should be doing this, putting out report cards. Hey, here's what we know. Here's what we said we would do in terms of access and making it available to you. We have failed in these ways. We've succeeded in these ways. And here have been the effects on health. These three components should absolutely be necessary, should be mandated, should happen in this country for anybody that cares, any government official that cares about the health of this country. Mm. If you look at COVID-19 now, bringing it back to very practical things, we know that the people who have the most severe disease and are hospitalized often have underlying medical conditions, underlying medical problems. We know that the majority of medical conditions are influenced by what we call lifestyle factors, the four pillars of nutrition, movement, rest, connection. So why, yes, vaccinations have been helpful, but why is there no widespread educational campaign saying that, hey, in just a matter of months, your underlying baseline health can be changed by addressing these four? And by the way, we're not only educating you, making really fun cartoons and shorts and social media and TikTok videos about this. Here are the partnerships that we're engaging in to make this more accessible to you. And this is going to be constant. 
this kind of messaging. And here's how we've failed and succeeded so far. Hmm. I don't know why we're not doing this. We need to do this in a practical way on a grand scale. Musical. Music to my ears. Amen. I, it's just, it's so frustrating to, to not see this as part of our cultural narrative, these pillars of health. And I don't want to sound cynical or conspiratorial, but the net result, if we were to do that, would be much healthier people, a much higher average level of health and well-being. And honestly, that would actually threaten profits of pharmaceutical companies. So do you think there's just, I don't, I don't know, like, it just seems like the pharmaceutical industry is unspeakably powerful and that there is a disincentive to promote health and well-being. So do you see that, that getting in the way? Is it already or could it? Well, let's talk about some of the changes that would happen, and then I'll answer this particular question, right? So if we did this, and if we then, along with this, shifted into this transformation phase of transition rather than staying in the shiny new object phase, right? By which transformation phase is characterized by new systems and new results, so new systems like a new model, a more complete model of human anatomy. So what would happen? Undeniably, health would improve, right? Because we're doing the basics, it's not rocket science. Health would improve. Um, the location of healthcare would improve. If we start to, as we start to change these nutrition movement, rest connection, and we're also informing people that, hey, there's a more complete model of human anatomy. Even if we just included mind in the model, you know, if energy is too esoteric, if consciousness is too philosophical, all right, I'll be happy with two rings of the circle. Mm -hmm. Start with body and add on mind. So just at least visually, we say, this is important. And by the way, to, to influence these in a subtler way, in a positive way, these are the four pillars. And by the way, here's how they're accessible to you. It's the water is there to drink, right? Mm -hmm. If we did this, the location of healthcare would change in the sense that Healthcare would be wherever you are because people would start to have a greater awareness of themselves and how they sit and relate with space. And that is such a key factor in health in how being aware of how we are feeling moment to moment, right? Being aware that, okay, here comes a wave of, of sadness. You know, here comes a wave of discomfort in my lower back. You know, ignoring that for 10 years is going to be a problem or having my attention so focused on something else, on having to earn my next paycheck, on is there enough food, on how can I actually feed my kids in a healthy way, such that I my awareness is not on how I am, how I am being now. This, this kind of patterns mount over time uh, and what lead to muscle constrictions, pain, you know, a decreased flexibility that may ultimately lead to fractures, um, eating the kinds of foods that are more inflammatory for the mind rather than more soothing for the mind and on and on, right? The, the list is endless in how this happens. So now all of a sudden that changes because I'm actually sensitive, right? Which is often a bad thing in our society. No, it's a wonderful thing to be sensitive as long as 
we have the authority to do something with that, to change and accommodate that, mm. to listen to that. Right. Now, all of a sudden, healthcare is here. Where Nick is, where Anoop is, where Sheila is, where Jose is, it's, it's where we are because the diagnosis and treatment is already happening now, right? In a very, in a very practical way because we're attending to those factors. So health changes, the location of healthcare changes, um, the personnel changes. Now, personnel and power, there's a shift in power now, right? Because yes, the physician is the expert in the medical model, but we are the experts in what we are experiencing and how we experience ourselves and our choices and how they affect us. So as we move towards the three bodies or the five bodies model, as we move towards the four pillars, now what is classified, who is classified as an expert changes, right? The average person goes up in terms of being an expert and people that are more understanding have more expertise in the energetic body, in the mind, in philosophy, in the relationship among these, their expertise and value goes up. So if you look at the overall value in the system, it's now redistributed. So the personnel that make up healthcare change. The power is redistributed, right? What else changes? Money naturally follows, right? Where there's a redistribution of value and a redistribution of power, there will be a redistribution of money. And what else? Um, of course, our approach, our technologies will change because we're not simply looking for physical diagnosis and physical treatment. And so even what we view as technology will change. Nature is amazing technology. So being outside in green might be seen as a kind of technology or the effect of that, we might be able to develop some kind of technology that, that can mirror that or can replicate that effect. So all to say, coming to your question now, if health is changing, if the location of healthcare is changing, if the personnel are changing, if the power is changing, if money is changing, if the approach and technology are changing, of course, any person, organization, industry that is depending on those things not changing is going to be resistant unless they change with the times, which companies are trying to do, right? There's now talk of electroceuticals and all other kinds of things. And what was the latest thing? Even like the idea of um, medical marijuana or psychedelics is a big thing now. How, how can we bottle a psychedelic into a pill and do that? And there's a movement towards that by industry because we are moving towards this. We are moving to this broader model of human anatomy, even if it hasn't been made explicit yet. So the answer to your question is yes, mm. industries will resist this. However, there's no industry that can resist the power of a human being to know themselves. And this is what we're talking about. If you have, you know, even a few million people, 10 million, 50 million people in the United States, that is starting to see this. I mean, we're talking about something that's happening, right? It's not hypothetical. The wellness industry is booming, but we have to bring some rigor to it. We have to systematize a few things, bring some experts together, mm. and then this will continue to happen despite resistance from industry. It gives me hope. And hopefully, like you said, that there will, it will be a sort of adaptation pressure 
that leads industry to get with the times and do what works. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the, the tricky thing though, of the, the fundamental nature of why like a, um, a medication can be so profitable is because it's patentable. So in this redistribution of value and power, it would be being distributed toward things that can't be patented as inventions. Mm -hmm. So that, I don't know how the industry would, would solve that issue and continue to make profits. But anyway, that's, that's for them to figure out. Um, Let me ask you this. We don't, let me just jump in and say that it doesn't have to stay the same. Right. In fact, it won't stay the same, right? That's that's the very definition of transformation. It's not going to stay the same. The industry is not going to stay the same. I think there's always going to be a role for some of these medications. Mm-hmm. I, I use some incredible medications in the emergency department that I don't think we should give up at all. Um, but we should know what medications we need and when, and we should be also looking upstream to say, what are the factors that happened over there at step A, B, and C that led to X, Y, Z here in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And the things that need to address that are not things that are patentable, right? It's nutrition, movement, rest, connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I, and I wouldn't want to come across to anyone as being ungrateful for medical inventions that have been patentable and profitable, but above all, useful and helpful. So I'm super grateful to live in, you know, in this culture where that's available. Um, in this redistribution of value based on valuing different expertise more, my question is like of those four pillars, what is the current medical school curriculum preparing doctors to be experts in from, from those four pillars in particular? Like how extensive is the nutritional component of med school curriculum? And do you study the effects of connection and, and rest and movement? I didn't. Uh, I don't know what is happening now. I'm, I'm sure, I think there's more nutrition now. I think a lot of it, like in terms of connection, movement will be in terms of electives. You know, you can take, um, so one of my talks is, could be included in a leadership elective in a medical school, for example. Um, But we have to go beyond kind of this elective idea, right? The truth is we've learned so much from this approach, from physicalizing the human being. And there's, there's so much to know, right? So you have a full curriculum just based on this. And that's just a testament to how diverse and wondrous this human being is that we are. Even just on a physical level. Even just on a physical level. And and ultimately that's because even the physical is not just physical. It's we're calling it physical, but Mm -hmm. it's an infinity into itself. Right. And and you go down, you go into this kind of uh, infinite hole and it just keeps going. It leads to the mind. It leads to energy. It leads to consciousness. It has to, because as we talked about the seamlessness of all this. Mm. And so let's not forget that, we have learned so much this way and there's so much material this way. It may not be that all of this is going to come from medicine or allopathic medicine, you know, mm-hmm. that it may be that we get a more, more full-fledged picture. We might recognize the complete model of human anatomy, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be practicing in chakras or we're going to be, what we're going to say is that, okay, you know, 
this aligns, for example, right? Let's say the, the third chakra, for example, is in the vicinity of the celiac plexus, and there are some issues associated with digestion, not just uh, digesting food, but just the way we kind of digest ideas and digest new experiences. This is all kind of integrated in this region. And so I think it'll be helpful to address those things as we address, uh, let's say, your Crohn's disease, for example. Mm -hmm. And so there's a referral there to a different kind of expert, right? Mm -hmm. And But of course, this person who's hearing this also has learned about this since they were a kid, because this is part of the just a simple curriculum in school that you learn who you are. You learn that what you see in the world is necessarily through the kind of lens that you're holding up. So, you know, this kind of partnership between an educated person who is a patient, the educated physician who has their own area of expertise, and another physician or another health expert who has their own area of expertise, this partnership can result when we have a model that all of us kind of agree on or educated in, which is the model of being human, not the Chinese medicine model, not the yoga model, not the allopathic model, not the, not the, the physics, the atomic model, but a model in which all of these have a place. One of the things I really loved from your book that hit me was the way you pointed out our use of the words alternative and conventional medicine. And it was kind of just like a duh moment, like, oh yeah, like, of course, like you were pointing out how, what is alternative to one person is conventional to another and vice versa. And so we have to be very careful because I think those of us in the US are very primed to discredit and dismiss anything that is labeled as alternative. I am someone who has benefited tremendously from what we might call an alternative medical system in Ayurveda. Um, and yet still, when I hear something described as alternative, I have this little, there's this little tinge in my perception of like, eh, that's probably kind of too close to being woo woo, too off base or something like that. It's, I'm just conditioned and I recognize that. Um, but to recognize that you know, in other cultures, this is conventional medicine. This is medicine and it works in all kinds of amazing ways. Granted, you know, we would have to, of course, be careful not to just validate everything that claims to be the way to health. So that's, that's, that requires the utmost discernment. But when we're talking about long-standing medical systems that are, that are coherent unto themselves, um, that's nothing that can be dismissed. And so I just wanted to point that out and encourage listeners and watchers too to watch out for that conditioning within yourself that if something is described as alternative, ask the question, alternative to what? The question is, should be just, does it work? Yeah. And I think that really has to be the standard is, does it work? Uh, like you said, this is not about accepting anything anybody says, right? And any, any kind of method is going to help you, is going to make you better, help you heal. Just a simple question, does it work? And, you know, if it does, it's not a, it's not a question of, I don't get how it works, right? Mm. That's education. That's, that's mm. very understandable. There are a lot of things we don't get. Right. But if it works, then the next thing, and I don't get what it works, then the question is, okay, what is the lens that I'm using? 
Yes. What are my assumptions? And, you know, that's the whole conversation about materialism and, and so right. on and so forth. Such a good point. Like the difference between knowing that it works versus knowing how it works. It's a big difference. And there was a time when humans did not know how water kept them alive, but they knew that it kept them alive. So they did it. And I right. think there are, there are many frontiers still where yeah, things are effective and we don't exactly know the mechanisms by which they're effective, but they are yeah. time tested and experimentally validated to be effective. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, it's a matter of, of being willing to ask what our assumptions are. And that's often why that, that's why we haven't gone far enough. That's why we're still in the shiny new object phase is because there are certain assumptions which are so familiar, which just keep the ground beneath us. And I don't want to give those up. Like I'll give anything else up. Okay. I'll give the other stuff up, but, but not what, not what gives me my salary, not mm. the assumptions that my salary is based on, not the assumptions that keep the ground under me. And so, you know, more and more people will have to experiment themselves and talk about it. And eventually that, that kind of avalanche will happen where mm. it has to show up in healthcare too. Mm. Yeah. I think there's a almost like existential level of uncertainty that we try to avoid at all costs by holding on to our assumptions about how the world works. Hmm. Yeah. And not almost existential, exactly. It is is existential. You're right. It is existential. And I think, I think we should say that more because it just brings it out in the, in the open, right? This isn't, this isn't because people are necessarily mean or just because people want to make money. I mean, yes, people do want to make money. Industry wants to make money. Physicians want to make money, you know, but that's not necessarily it. It's an existential threat that who am I, if not an expert on this, Mm -hmm. who am I, if I don't make this amount of money, like who am I to my family? Who am I to my community? Right. All the letters after my name, if they don't signify this expertise, then who am I? That is existential. That's looking death in the face. You're right. And I think there's a collective version of that too. Who are we, if not for the system we believe in or the paradigm that we stand upon? Hmm. And, and, and it's just interesting to think about when there's a collective threat to, to certainty, there's a collective effort to hold on to certainty and to ward off the threat. So there's a lot of reinforcing, I think, that happens around like um, dismissing things that feel threatening to my belief system or quickly d- discrediting them. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I always give a huge shout out to the watchers and listeners who are still here at the end. And today has been, you know, over an hour and a half long conversation. And I just, I've loved this conversation. So, so yeah, thank you to the listeners and watchers. I'm so glad that this was a value and Dr. Anoop Kumar, you're the man. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. I've enjoyed it. And to all the listeners, please spread the word, you know, I think I would like to move into the transformation phase of healthcare. 
Mm. So whatever you can do, I appreciate it. And I'll just kind of, so that listeners remember, you know, you can memorize this, the four pillars that Dr. Kumar really advocates are connection, nutrition, rest, movement. And I couldn't just stand with you more firmly in advocating that because I really think that there are physical and mental just abnormalities and disorders that are actually results of not having those pillars in place, which then get diagnosed as whole other conditions and treated as isolated conditions when they could have been eliminated and perhaps all along they were signals of not sufficiently standing on those pillars up. So connection, nutrition, rest, movement, let's all take this to heart, become educated, be in conversation about what those mean to you and how you can optimize these areas of your life. And let's all enjoy well-being together. <laughs>